When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the Book Riot Podcast. It's a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. Today is Thursday, May 19th, 2022. I'm Jeff O'Neill here with Rebecca Shinsky, as always, coming to you from bookriot.com. Rebecca, last time we got, we um, made a huge mistake. And a huge mistake meaning a mistake I do not feel that bad about. For Me reasons neither. I will rationalize here in a minute. Kazuo Ishiguro is not an American, and ergo not eligible to win the Pulitzer Prize. So in defense of us, that is a stupid rule, and it's not the same for the journalism parts of <laughs> the <true>. Pulitzers, <laughs> where you can be from wherever, and as long as your thing appeared in an American publication, um, which, I don't know, a little, a little, a little um, company called PRH is mm-hmm. in uh, Riverhead, or I think is Riverhead, or is it just Random House that was the Kazoo Sugar? I can't remember the imprint. But anyway, remember. it's under the... It was published in America. I think... It's silly that this is a rule for the Pulitzer. It's supposed to be about American life. I think we're beyond that. And I had forgotten. I think the other thing I was conflating was that the Booker um, went to English speaking. And I just had forgotten that this still was this provincial rule. Okay, so congratulations. Um, A book about the Netanyahu's, who I believe are Israelis. Uh, prime ministers was eligible where Kazuo girl is not. That's the rule. We were out. I forgot. Yeah. You know, I like that you just went straight for this is a stupid rule. Um, mm-hmm. I, I do agree with that. I was going to go more for like, I was tired. It was Thursday. <laughs> <laughs> Both of these things can be true. Yeah. Uh, and thanks to our listeners who pointed this out because I was like genuinely puzzled last week. Like how, how I'm sure all these books are good, but like, come on, there is an Ishiguro and come on. Uh, but speaking of, the Netanyahu's by Joshua Cohen. Our pals over at Pushkin produced the audiobook of it. And we have heard wonderful things, including a couple of our members over at the Wheelhouse, which is our Patreon, uh, said that it's just phenomenal on audio. Mm. If you want to find out for yourself, there is going to be a sample after the show. Uh, as we've been experimenting with, we've had a couple of these. So just stick around after we say goodbye at the end. You'll get to hear a couple of minutes of that audiobook production. And if you are a member uh, of the Patreon, you'll be able to access a 20% discount in the show notes over on Patreon. And if you're not a member of the Wheelhouse, but you want to be, you can join us there at patreon.com slash bookriotpodcast. When you join, you'll get access to all of the back episodes as well, the whole archive. The whole archive is not enormous right now. We've only been doing this for about a Mm -hmm. month, but it would include that discount uh, to the Netanyahu's, which will be good through May 31st. So big thanks to our friends over at Pushkin. This is not an ad. They didn't pay us to say it. We just like them and think they do interesting things with audio. We like to try stuff. They were willing to let us try. So here we are. I'm going to listen. I haven't listened to the excerpt. I'm going to stick around and listen at the end to the show. And see what it sounds like. Uh, I was pleasantly surprised because this was, remember, NYRB published the print version. Mm-hmm. And that's usually a fairly small kind of print run situation. In fact, I saw that it was, it's still, you can't you can't have one for love or money right now um, around. 
Pushkin, especially coming out of Florence Williams, and I don't know. Have you listened to the Netanyahu sample yet? Did you listen to it? I have not yet. I was waiting for, I just got it like 20 minutes ago. Mm. (laughs) Oh, no. I didn't know if it was as, like, what's the um, production, not quality, because most audiobooks sound pretty good, but it does have like music and some other stuff like the Florence Williams, because that's, I'm surprised to see it in Pushkin's, that's what I'm saying, for fiction. I don't know. I've seen a lot of these, and what are they going to do? How do they Pushkinize it? Yeah, stick around and find out. Uh, Let's do our first break, and I've got some other follow-up type things to do. Um, but, 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 here's where I'm going to start. You know, someone was asking, I don't want to linger too much on the Patreon. Our next wheelhouse thing, are we recording that after this? Our we are. We're every yeah. week, back to back, you and me. <laughs> and I think this one is, um, we're going to be talking about content ideas for Patreon. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be like Inception for that. A little meta. And that's interesting, maybe for the people and people can let us know in the comments on Patreon. But I had a couple of questions about the pricing for the Patreon. And I think it's worth just saying, like, you know, my Netflix is twelve ninety nine, and I got infinite things. A reasonable point. Sure. Um, my Hulu is seven ninety nine. I have, have unlimited things. This is even if you guys continue to churn out four goddamn nice hours a week <laughs> of audio, you know, 10 bucks a month is a lot more than that. And to you, I would say... Well, well, mathed. That is true. Um, I think the difference for small creators like us is we're making something you can't get anywhere else, and we don't have the economies of scale of those places, right? We don't have 128 million subscribers, um, and so this is where it's sustainable, where it's worth our time and the company's efforts to make it. And in in your sort of personal algebra of paying for stuff that keeps you entertained and informed and occupied while you're doing stuff, if it doesn't pencil out. I'm not really expecting it to be like, it's either Netflix or the Book Riot Patreon. That to me seems a silly kind of, uh, mm-hmm. it's a different thing. Um, so there's the reason. It is not meant to match up one-to-one, um, much like um, a handmade thing is not meant to match up like a uh, mass-produced thing. This is handmade content is the way I would put this at this point. Yeah, I think that's a great, I mean, that's true and a great way to sort of synthesize all the elements of it along with like this is our this is part of our job and we have to decide how we're going to spend our roughly 40 hours every week and in a way that we can justify and that's more valuable than other ways that we might spend them so we gave a lot of thought to the pricing and also we know that in general a relatively small percentage of any Mm -hmm. show's audience ever opts in to you know back their patreon or join their exclusive membership or be like be an espn insider or you know any of those examples that are available and we were hoping to reach you know roughly that same percentage of our audience and capture the people who are interested and able but yeah we never intended to be competing with your netflix account we cannot compete with your netflix account we can't compete with my netflix account (laughs) 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 and um, we're really grateful to everybody who is joining us there but also like no hard feelings if Mm -hmm. if it's just not for you right now or not for you ever that's okay yeah okay um let's see the other thing i have uh, just book sales um pretty soon we're gonna do a i still don't know what the tally was for the summer draft um but a couple of those more and more of the those books that we picked are coming onto the market and may 3rd was a big one mm-hmm. um we talked about the the first real big one well actually it was the last spring one because that was sea of tranquility and candy house candy house has completely fallen off the top 20 and sea of tranquility was barely holding on so it's going to fall out soon but the big winner uh last week was the release of book lovers by emily henry mm-hmm. um 68,000 copies which is a really, really big number. 
um, it led by a pretty wide margin the trade paperback front list, which is interesting. That's paperback. Yeah. And then The Book of Night by Holly Black um, debuted at number two on the hardcover front list fiction behind, I think, a, oh, I think it was a Baldacci or Patterson. Mm. You know what I'm talking mm-hmm. about. Behind yeah. one of those. One of those guys. Um, I haven't seen a whole lot of buzz for The Book of Night. And I'll tell you, are we doing a front list foyer today? We can. We don't have one in the notes. We're in We have a lot here. of news. I'll just say this. I am about halfway through Book of Night. Um, I wouldn't bet on it becoming a phenomenon. Let's just put it that way. Okay. Um, it's not bad. I'm not saying it's bad, but it doesn't have that je ne sais quoi where I feel like this is really going to do a thing if it's, it's not, not coming like out a, hot and heavy. Not like Night Circus vibes? No. I mean, it's. I, I'm not super conversant in the world of urban fantasy, like what the, the, the tropes and lingua franca and the vibes that people are more familiar with it, but a dark fantasy where it's like a crime novel set in, in a world like ours with some fantasy elements. I don't have a good prior for that going nuts um, on the sales charts. Um, it's neither it's neither like twisty and familiar enough to be like a crawdads sort of a situation, mm. nor is it so fantasy realm transporting to be a court of thorns and roses or night circus or something like that. So it always, it could be the case that this combination is a new thing and it'll catch on. Maybe I could be wrong. Um, I know that's a shock to all of you that that's a possibility, (laughs) but in reading it now, um, I like it. It's interesting. I haven't read Holly Black before, but to me, it's not, it's not a, it's not really a candidate to be a giant seller. Um, Okay. uh, More than, more than the Holly Black and, marketing machine is going to make it book lovers emily henry you know i was thinking about this kind of book in the old days would we have called this chiclet we haven't read this we're just looking at the marketing we've read the synopsis we know some of emily Henry. this is in the old days we call this chiclet absolutely right yes i think it's interesting to look at some of the other authors that have come and become part of the commercial fiction with a largely um female audience and it's interesting that they do one or two, and it's usually their second or third is the big one. But if they start publishing a book every year, it's not as special when they have a book come out. And just to use some examples, like I think that's where the, Gen- the Jennifer Weiner territory mm-hmm. we're in, the Jody Picot mm-hmm. territory mm-hmm. we're in. They have new books come out now. They're not selling 68,000 copies per, but in like their first few, there were. They were selling that number. And I wonder if like there's kind of a sweet spot for you're new enough that people are like, oh, how many Emily Henry books are there out now? But you're not, you. But you haven't been around so long that there's so many to choose from, and people are excited about it, so so it feels special. Yeah, I just. I think, what do you think about that theory? Of, I think of, there uh, is these? something to that. Like scarcity makes things a little bit mm. more exciting as well, and also maybe something to the real blending over the last I don't know half mm. decade or so between like a rom com a chick what we would have formerly yeah. called chicklet yeah. romance and just sort of commercial fiction like a lot of these are you know fun sort of light novels that have a romance subplot some of them are romance novels that are light and fun to read but not like super romance tropey and the the blurring of those lines i think is confusing not in a bad way it's like interesting confusing for if for if you're a reader who's trying to get a particular thing but if you're a casual reader if you're not like a diehard romance mm-hmm. fan say who's gonna read 25 mass market paperback romance novels or now it would be like 25 romance ebooks every month um 
if you're not diehard like that, and maybe this is my personal experience with um, with most genres actually coming in, but the tropes are it's it's predictable and repetitive, and this is what mm. like formula and trope are supposed to do. You know what's going to happen in a romance. You know that they're going to end up together. You know that at the end of a mystery, like a thing that you hopefully didn't see coming is going to come out and it's going to be solved. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I just wonder <laughs> if after a couple of those, it's just less exciting because you know what you're getting. Like the mm. first couple. Jennifer Weiner's were exciting because we didn't know Jennifer Weiner's flavor of, at the time, Chiclet. The first couple, like Jasmine Guillory's, were really exciting right. because we hadn't right. had her kind of right. voice in the world of romance or rom-com. Maybe the same for Emily Henry, and this this was a new thing. Also, like how many genius SEO-focused book titles can Emily Henry come up with? <laughs> I'm looking forward to seeing that happen. Mm. But I, I just wonder if that has something to do with it as well, where it's like, I know what this is about, and that's nice, but like, who else is new that can give me a surprising, interesting new thing that I haven't experienced before? Yeah, it seems like you either achieve um, escape velocity to become a Grisham or a Daniel Silva, right? Or a Patterson where people just want that hit mm-hmm. every time and there's got such a huge audience. Or you become, you know, a, a success, not not to say not su- totally successful, but it's kind of an interesting intermediary stage where we don't know yet if this is going to be a durable name um, for a long time, and every book that Emily Henry writes is we should expect to be at the top of the bestseller list. Maybe almost in a way, I'd say Kristen Hanna is almost a guarantee at yes, this point. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Or is there a kind of a is there a kind of a sweet spot where you're new but not you're new but you have a little bit of built in audience, so you can really yeah, build when- on top of that. I just think some of it too is regression to the mean that like most authors are never going to be that big for any of their books. Oh, totally. Yeah. And the ones who do get that big, most of the people who read that author's big book are going, are not going to come back (laughs) for the other ones. They're going to go off and read something else for their 10 to 12 books per year, Mm. which is, I think just that stat that we have to keep coming back to when we talk about trends of like most people who are even heavy readers are reading about a book a month and if you want any kind of variety in that, then sticking with one author repeatedly kind of erodes mm. that as well. A heads up, some of you like this as well. Rebecca and I, I'm about halfway through um, How the World Really Works by Vasav Shmiel. And yes. Rebecca, it's up next on her. So we'll probably be talking about that together sometime soon if you're interested in that. I will say this. I, I, I texted Rebecca that um, <laughs> this is God-level dad booking. And that's not all good, I should say. Oh, okay. So I'm there's a there's a that. mix. So I, I, for those of you who, it's more nerdy than like a Mukherjee. Mm. It's more specific than that. There's ma- there's a there's quite a bit of math, and it's in milligrams of oil consumed per chicken thigh, like that kind of stuff. <laughs> okay. I, I'm not joking. That I is believe not you. hyperbole. <laughs> that is now that's really interesting. What I want to say about why I think it's God level. There's two reasons. One is. I think how the world really works is a way that is the principal describer you could use for for the canonical kind of dad book. That's what a dad book is really mm-hmm. about. It's like there is something about the world that is not common knowledge, and I want to get into the nitty gritty of agriculture or presidential history, maritime warfare, you know, fishing. Um, and this one is also very unartful. Uh-huh. And I think that's an interesting... I had never really considered that point. Um, it's not funny at all. It's not trying to write beautiful sentences. It's trying to create... It's trying to communicate 
interesting and nuanced ideas or facts, I guess it should be case. But from a reading pleasure point of view, I don't even think it's like, you know, a turnoff kind of experience where you're kind of hmm. in, into the world of it. I'll be curious to hear what you think. I think if you read a chapter or two of this, you will get the vibe. And unless okay. you really want to know how much um, natural, uh, liquefied natural <laughs> gas it takes to, um, to get a 747 from Singapore to London, maybe you've gotten it. Um, Because it's mostly about how much energy we use and how diesel and fossil fuels are going to be around for a long time, no matter what um, we say. uh, That's super interesting. I I think my like gold standards for how things work dad books up till now are like Steven Johnson on the more casual end where you can just tell he's delighted by the stuff. Like he would make Muppet arms about it on a Discovery Channel special if you let him. And then on the other, like on the serious end, Mukherjee, where the sentences are really beautiful and he's Mm -hmm. just like enamored of the ideas. Um, That's really interesting. I think it's a spectrum. I think there's a spectrum that's on the one side of the dad book spectrum is there's, you can be a crossover hit like a Bill Bryson or something like that when you're doing, you know, uh, a short history of nearly, nearly everything or a Sarah Vowell, for example, doing presidential history or something like that. And then Mukherjee is, a step towards scientific. This is where you're verging on academic. And this is the kind of book that if you see someone reading it that likes it, it's not generally recommendable. And I think a McCullough, you know, like the, the Wright mm-hmm. Brothers one, or yeah, the Mukherjee, Ed Young, um, some of those things. But that's what I'm saying. Like this is advanced level dad booking. This isn't in the middle. This isn't po- This will not be popular dad booking like a, yeah, the Bomber Mafia like, or the Tipping like Point. This high is high end of nerdy. Grad, level, grad student dad booking. You know, <laughs> dad books 501. Yeah. Granddad books. <laughs> so anyway, we're coming to talk about that. Also, I just started um, Trust by Hernan Diaz for my fiction mm. read. Really mm-hmm. interesting so far. And I just bought, and it's going to be my next audio, the new Jhumpa Lahiri translating myself and others, which I've been looking Lovely. forward to. Disappointed to see she's not narrating at this. I found myself now, if it's nonfiction especially, in essays or memoir, and the, yes. and the author is not narrating it, my shoulders go down a little, Rebecca. I didn't mm-hmm. realize this until... It's just true. I, I don't know what to say. I was just... I'm not going to turn me off, but I was just a little less excited if the author is not reading it. I feel that way, I too. I think listening to the author tell their own story is one of mm-hmm. the biggest reasons to, to do nonfiction, especially, as you were saying, memoir or essays in audio, because you get to hear how they tell the story and how mm-hmm. what, what inflection their voice takes. And uh, like in Lab Girl, if they get emotional, you get to hear it. Or even in the Mike Shore, you know, How to Be Perfect, yes. you get to hear him talk about like wrestling with these ideas and laughing at some of the concepts. And I totally feel that that's I'm more on the like podcast tip right now than nonfiction audiobooks mm. but when I go to nonfiction audio I really want a an interesting smart person telling me about their life themselves I totally feel that yeah because if um, Zadie Smith has a new book out especially if it's essays and she doesn't narrate it I'm gonna drive to London <laughs> is that where I have to go yeah you drive to London that's that's the how it works step. yeah mm-hmm. I'm good at traveling and um <laughs> protest something I don't know where find a thing and protest it yeah come Uh, on redo this all for me although if they just made zadie smith the reader of all audiobooks that would be acceptable to me that's the best idea i've ever heard (laughs) shut it down right now (laughs) well you have been busy in frontlist foyer i've had kind of a quiet but great Mm -hmm. 
one book reading week. I'm just about to finish. I thought I was going to finish it on my lunch break right before we recorded this, actually. Um, Linda Holmes's forthcoming oh, novel, yeah. Flying Solo. It comes out in June. Uh, she's the author of Evie Drake something something. Um, Evie Drake he, starts over. Yeah. Starts over. I was like, Evie Drake's last chance. That's not right. Uh, <laughs> Ellen Bockfiss's, Lillian Bockfiss's last walk. Yeah, something like Female that. name. <laughs> Adjective activity. Yes, the tiger's wife's daughter's walk thing. Walk to the sea. To the sea in a field. Um, <laughs> with a spy in a Paris library. Oh. Uh, anyway, Flying Solo, kind of a familiar feel to uh, readers of Evie Drake. It's about a woman who is, uh, she has just turned 40. Her family is back in a small town in coastal Maine. She's been living in, I think, Seattle for a while. And her favorite aunt has died. And she it has fallen to her to clean out her aunt's house. Her four brothers uh, are all busy. And she's like, you know, I relate to this aunt. Uh, she was single her whole life, really independent. She traveled the world, had this sort of like lovely, mysterious life, lived to be 93. And so our heroine is going to clean out her house and help sell the things that can be sold and find good homes for the things uh, that can't be sold. And in the process, she reconnects with an old flame who is a hot librarian, mm. uh, which come on, Linda Holmes. That's just, I mean, that is fan service of the next level. And I appreciate it. Like, like a little romance story with a sexy male librarian. Uh, but she also discovers an item in her aunt's house that introduces a little bit of a mystery running through the story about what this thing is, what her aunt's relationship to it was. Does it point to like some secret relationship that her aunt had and some shenanigans happen around it? It's really fun, just delightful. It's perfect for hmm. mid-June beach or travel reading it's like exactly what i wanted from linda holmes and as a lady who is turning 40 in a couple months here i loved a romance heroine who is that age who's reflecting on her life and her choices from the perspective of like this particular moment in life um, and thinking about what it is to be a little bit unconventional uh, so i'm i'm really into it i recommend it i don't remember which of us had it on our summer draft list mm. but one of us did and whoever it did was right <laughs> I think I I think I did pick, I think you I think got it too. I think yeah. I did pick it um eventually. So cool. Looking forward to all that stuff coming up. Uh but anyway, well I'll be interested to see what your experience of um uh how the world really works. I will keep you posted. Is going. Okay, let's do another sponsor break. Um boy, I don't know. So two stories we're going to talk about kind of together and not for super long. Um this is, goes beyond another mm -hmm. another episode of the recurring series of people trying to get books that kids could really benefit from out of school libraries. The The fronts have been expanded. We're into North Africa now, I think. And, and I think we're into, you know, shooting V2s into London. We're on Western and Eastern and Southern fronts here. And the new fronts are twofold um, in the great bigoted quest to keep books um, that talk about multiple experiences from kids. A Virginia politician and the law firm is suing an individual branch of Barnes & Noble for selling and carrying genderqueer and a court of mist and fury um, as young adult titles and charging that they are obscene and pornographic and therefore they've violated the law somehow. 
this is a new thing and this mm-hmm. is really now we're talking censorship now we're talking censorship yes. here in a way that i in schools i think it's fair to say but that's not the open idea marketplace like that, those are schools that's a little bit different than the really idea of the, the marketplace of ideas we talk about the first amendment and I've never heard of anything like this. Mm-hmm. This 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 brings me back, frankly, to the annotated episode we did about James Joyce, yeah. where really suing individual publishers um, and putting them in jail, um, especially the two sisters that um, were on trial for serializing the first couple of chapters of um, Ulysses. Uh, luckily, um, they they won. Uh, those those suits were won, but. This really feels not just like a step backward, but a, a slap in the face and as mad and as frustrated and scared as I've been about any story we've ever done on, on, along these lines, Rebecca. I have to admit, we haven't talked yeah, about this at all. I'm not sure if you're not. on the same wavelength or not, but this to me is an escalation that differs in kind, not just of degree, it, as we've seen before. It does. And I guess I can't decide how serious this is. Like, it is serious. Because you mean, is it a stunt? I'm sorry. Yeah, I, that's what serious? I mean. Yeah, no, no, that's oh, exactly what okay. I mean. Like, I was struggling there for how serious, because obviously mm. I take it seriously that these kinds of challenges to just the availability of books as products exist. Um, Tommy Altman is, who is, actually, Tommy Altman is the attorney. State Delegate Tim Anderson is the person who, the politician who's behind this. And he is currently up for re-election mm. in Virginia Beach. Um, so that's not accidental <laughs> that he is no. up for re-election while this is happening. I think they have to know that this is not going anywhere. Neither of these books meets the legal definition of or, of obscene or pornographic. And we have legal definitions of those words <laughs> for right. very good reason. Um, it's also very Streisand effecty. Like you, yes. they're only selling more copies of these books. You and I came of age in the '90s, where Tipper Gore succeeded in getting CDs labeled with explicit on the covers. It's the only reason I and, ever bought NWA, to be yes, honest with you. Yes, yeah, and there were, I mean, very smart rap groups that made that explicit content notice on their covers of their CDs as big as they possibly could, because when you were flipping through CDs in the Sam Goody in the mall, and now I. I really sound like I came back from 1997, (laughs) you would be like, oh, well, this must be risque. I want this. And you were not required to have parental consent to buy it. It was just like, heads up, this is spicy. (laughs) And if you were shopping alone without your parents, as a lot of teenagers were and still do, hey, this is spicy is very appealing. So they're they're drawing attention to this. I think this is largely a stunt with maybe a hey, maybe we can get like maybe we can cause some more headaches for more stores. It's interesting that they're just going after this one branch of Barnes and Noble because Barnes and Noble is Virginia Beach is a large area <laughs> in mm. Virginia. It's like there are other bookstores in that area. There are other bookstores nearby, so I'm curious, I guess, about why just this one branch when these are popular titles that have been widely available? It's also interesting that we, and I hadn't even really thought about it until you were talking about the annotated episode, but that we haven't seen any of these jokers going after, like trying to sue a publisher for even making this content because they have to know that that would fail. This looks mm-hmm. like, you know, we're, we have the governor that we have right now in Virginia because of a successful campaign around critical race theory and scaring parents about not having control over their children's education. And this looks like to me an attempt to continue that conversation here um, by like, let's, 
you know, we, we've gone after the schools, but like, let's show them how serious we are. Let's go after the stores, too. I, I'm, I guess I'm not terribly worried about this succeeding. I think this has a much lower chance of succeeding in any kind of scale, any movement like this than the level of concern that I have about what's going on in schools, because we have all these right wing folks running for school boards and publishing books about how to get elected to school boards and take over and continue this slow play towards authoritarianism where they can then make the rules about what's available in the library and what goes on the curriculum. But it's, you know, deeply ironic, I guess, that it's also the Republican Party that insists on the government staying out of commerce. And not regulating what private businesses can do. And if you want to tell a private business which books that are not obscene or pornographic they can or can't stock, then you're really in a just a deeply hypocritical place, which is not new, but needs to be said, I think. I don't know. I mean, I'm not... and the marketing as like, it shouldn't be marketed because young adults, because it's inappropriate somehow and then become, I mean, it's all garbage, right? It is all garbage. I think they're, they're fi- they found a little crease in the marketing slash content vortex because people are focusing on young when it's young adult. These aren't Mm -hmm. kids. The marketing is young adult. Now, I know that can mean a variety of different things. There's legal ages around pornography and whatever, but there's a little opening for here to to get on a high horse and try to charge at something. And it feels like this is grandstanding. But on the other hand, you got to grandstand first before laws get changed. So doesn't mean it's indicative of a widespread or even a specific um, successful, I don't know, complaint, legal overturning or legal compulsion to pull these books or put them in a different place in the, in the, in the bookstore. Um, There is no, will they need to be, you know, get the, uh, the cellophane sleeve like Hustler Mm -hmm. in 1992 and be put over. I don't, I don't know what that's going to look like, but it's not good. Um, and it's very not good, even if this person is super callow and it's a political calculation, that someone thinks is a political calculation that scores points with someone is yeah. really deflating. It's really it sad is. and it sucks real bad. And go Barnes & Noble. Um, it's a real chance for Barnes & Noble to get on the high ground, which mm-hmm. they haven't gotten in a while, frankly. We're not That's Amazon, true. but as a champion, a place where you can be you know, the, the, the savior, like Joe Fox can say... Uh, Fox and Book stands up for freedom of expression. That's nothing we've ever heard out of Barnes mm-hmm. & Noble. Do you ever remember this? No, but um, I'm thinking now, like, if I'm running Barnes & Noble's marketing on the day that we yes. get sued for this, I'm like, how do we put the biggest, gayest rainbow flag over our homepage ever and yeah. really show that this is what we are about? Can because I get just, Michelle yeah. Obama to make an appearance <laughs> and say, you know, I'm, I'm not joking, Rebecca. Yeah, like, you yeah. can do like, stuff like this. They live, they're close by. You know... You could, and you could, I think it would be really smart to reach out to more moderate Republican leaders as well. Mm. Like, that doesn't appeal to this base, but it might appeal to the folks who don't quite know what to think about all of this, who are tradi- who have traditionally voted to the right of center. Like, can we trot out, uh, trot out Mitt Romney to talk about how this is ridiculous <laughs> and, yep. and to team up about intellectual freedom and how allowing businesses to make their own choices about how they operate is fundamentally a Republican value. Mm-hmm. There's, there's well, a lot to take there's apart. There's a lot there. I think what might be fomenting is this Republican strategy around the boogeyman of critical race theory worked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
is there a similar opportunity around LBGTQ plus? And they don't have the catchphrase yet, interestingly. And yeah, maybe it it's, is. Maybe they're trying to find out, will obscenity work? Will pornography, will calling this yeah. stuff pro- pornography work? Is that our critical race theory for gender fluidity, um, diverse sexualities and orientations and experiences? Can we package that up into a buzzword that if we are against it, we can get some votes? Yeah, I think I mean, there's I think a chance it does. I think there's a chance I, that, it, that it works. Yeah, I think it works as a political strategy. I don't think that it works as a, like, in a getting actually getting these books out of a Barnes and Noble, but getting these folks into office can open the doors to all kinds of terrifying things. Well, I was going to say, I mean, yeah. you get the politicians, then you get the judges. I mean, not right. to not right. to bring and it then you can redefine obscenity yeah. and pornography. Right. That's sure. Right. Uh, I mean, we're talking yeah. about overturning Roe versus Wade, so why not? That's what, I'm, so I'm saying. Obscenity? I mean, it may take forty years, but yeah. it, it can happen. But they've slow um, played this one, and they'll slow yeah. play another one. That's um, right. Doesn't mean that the slow play will work, but. It's hard to have that without this as an initial move, right? I mean, this yeah, is this how is, things start. It's, it's definitely, I think it's a sign of something. And and if nothing else, really the cravenness of yeah. this political movement um, to, th- this is deadly. You know, in like yeah. this, these kinds of moves, attempts to take these kinds of books out of the sphere where kids can access them will lead to trans and queer kids taking their lives. It will lead to kids not having anything that says, I see you and not having something to feel safe and understood and to, you know, be able to understand themselves through that kind of lens. Literature like this is affirming. And that's why it's terrifying Mm -hmm. to folks on the right. I think it cannot be said often enough that if you if they really believed that gender roles were so natural and unshakable, they wouldn't be so scared about all of this. They wouldn't be trying so hard to defend what they think is true. On some level, they know that it's shakeable because it's already been shaken <laughs> and culture has already moved. And I understand that that's scary and I do not feel bad for them. But this needs to stop. Um, I think we, uh, those of us on the left have got to get better at organizing around it and anticipating these kinds of things and being as canny with hopefully not being as disgusting about strategies to get folks in office to counter this. The next story, I'm not, I'm surprised we hadn't seen this before. I had wondered, and I didn't even want to say it out loud because I thought it was another soft target or mm-hmm. a place people might go is now conservative parents are taking aim at the library apps, um, you know, Overdrive, Libby, there's some other ones out there too. Because if you have it on your iPad, and like my kids do, they have Overdrive, uh, excuse me, Libby on their iPads, and they can go browse and find everything else. And there's some stuff on there that you may not um, be super thrilled if, if you're a right-wing um, bigot. And so they're looking at, you know, some of the water coming through this faucet is not what I want. And so I want to kill the faucet. I want to chop the faucet off. I want to, ta- or what do they call cap the faucet. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not surprised. I think this is a harder situation. And then, but if it succeeds... It'll be much more damaging because I think the digital access to books is sneakily a real um, um, subversive place. Actually. Oh, yeah. Really, it's, it's much more subversive I mean, than it's gotten credit for, I think, to this point. I think so. When we were kids, you had to hide it under the mattress. Yeah, that's right. You had to get it from somewhere first. <laughs> right. You had to like, physically had to, get the atoms right. in your hand. You know? Right. First, you had to get it somehow. Like you had to know about it and acquire it and then hide it under the mattress. There was no just like accidental discovery in the way that there is if you're scrolling through something. I have nothing kind to say 
about this. I don't think it's defensible. If you don't want your kids reading certain things, parent your children and pay attention. Yeah. Um, but it's fundamentally unacceptable to me to think that you should be able to take down the app that gives any other child or any other human access to information. It's not what we believe in in America. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I guess the difference between the two stories, I mean, there are multiple, but if if genderqueer in a court of mist and fury were reshelved into an adult section. I'm not saying that's right. The book could stay in the shelves because I don't know if you've been to a Barnes and Noble. Oh, you go 3.30 every day with the high school kids. I forgot you guys, you're doing that still. Um, <laughs> right, every day. Just there is that. no velvet rope that separates the adult fiction and, section from the young adult section or the kids section. So this is different because this is the... If they, if they yes. say, I don't know what kind of controls or what they're saying about... like. This is not, there is no, I'll just go over this different aisle if they do something to the digital apps. So that is a lot different. That's true. And to go back to the Barnes and Noble story then for a minute, that also points to the degree to which this is a stunt of some kind or a step along the road of some kind. Because even if they recategorize every book with a queer character as adult, there is no velvet rope. Anybody can wander into the adult fiction section. You don't have to like go through the beads hanging from the doorway to enter into like the secret back room behind the regular videos. And there's no ID check to purchase books at the cash register at Barnes and Noble. You can, any person of any age can buy whatever they want if they've got the dollars to pay for it. And like this is about drawing attention to these things and and I think probably trying to make some sort like some sort of chipping away at how we think about obscenity and pornography but if it were actually about access well I don't know whatever maybe they're not good enough critical thinkers to have thought about this that those kids could go to the adult fiction well but if it's a stunt I mean I guess that would augur for maybe this is a stunt where it's not so much the um, effect as the issue that someone wants. I think the conservative parents actually want these lives. They think they maybe can get this. Like they could, they think they yeah. could actually close this faucet. Mm-hmm. They could actually turn this and, and, and turn it off. Um, I guess I don't know much about the Sarah J. Moss phenomenon. I should maybe just for clarity, I don't think that one is actually about LBGQ or at least the, the passages are cited. There's a link in the show notes here. This mm-hmm. is a story that was on this book riot today. And there's some passages that were highlighted by the complaint um, those are sex scenes, and it, it looks to me quickly in very blurry trying to expand their um, um, heterosexual sex scenes. Um, Genderqueer is about, well, it's in the title. It's on, it's on the tin there a little bit more. So it's kind of trying to go after both um, at the same time, both the explicit depiction of sex and the depiction mm-hmm. and representation of um, different sexual orientations and identities. So I just didn't want to conflate them. They're they're yeah. about they're they're trying to get rid of everything that they don't like. Essentially, it's about Russian. control. It's about control. Yeah, it's about control. Uh, let's see. Let's go to. I don't. know, Maybe this is a transition. Um, the Atlantic had a post mm-hmm. um, recently that they're expanding their book coverage, um, which we got. <laughs> we did the things like there's something you don't see. Everything expanded book coverage. And I'm not sure what to say about this, Rebecca. I think it is notably in our Slack discussion, it sort of died on the vine of what to say yeah. about it. I don't know. Do you see in, in the language here? Do you see anything? I mean, what, why, no. what are they doing? Is there some ulterior motive or is it just the thing they say, which is books are great. We're committed to different kinds of dialogues around stories. I don't know why this is more true today than it was seven or eight years ago. I, I'm trying to find a trend topic or what's going on. Is there a yeah. business thing? I don't know. I don't know. It's, I mean, it's interesting because the books, 
sections of most like mainstream publications really contracted there for a while. And it was around the period of, oh, my God, is everyone just going to watch Netflix forever and never read any more books? We're competing with all the other things now when like we books had always been competing with all the other forms of media. And I think as that has settled and readers interest in books has remained durable publications, I I think are just coming back around to, oh, right, like books are fine. People are still reading a lot of them. As we talked about several months ago, the latest study about like the health of reading in America is like we're doing fine. People are still reading books. It's Mm. not declining in any meaningful, scary way, which means if you write or produce a publication that addresses media and media that's about ideas, which is really what we're doing with books, you can fill some space talking about books you're trying to get page views so that you have eyeballs to sell against advertising or people to pull in at different interests so that you can get them to subscribe to various things and books are a a huge thing that a lot of people are interested in so i think both just talking about books themselves but also pieces that go that do what the atlantic does of like here is an idea and an exploration of this idea by an author of this book or these authors of this couple of books like there's there are just a lot of ways into it um that and and many more ways that nobody has thought of yet like we've we've Mm -hmm. been doing this for a decade a lot of folks have been writing about books in media for a lot longer than we have and there continue to be new ways to do it new books coming out new ideas to have if anything like i kind of read this as a like maybe we dialed back and we shouldn't have Mm -hmm. so we're expanding i guess maybe it's a counter or or Similar along as a similar track to the praise I've heaped upon Alexander Alter and Elizabeth Harris and the New York Times mm-hmm. reading books um, and publishing beat that they do. They they cover really interesting stuff a lot of the time. I think here's the the piece to me I found the most interesting. Um, this is Jane um, Kim. Is that the name correctly? Yeah, Jane Young Kim. Notes. Jane Young Kim says, um, "Let's see." We'll be bringing you more of what we've always done, as well as some new offerings. Expect more book reviews and essays, plus provocative arguments, reported stories, profiles, original fiction and poetry, and of course, recommendations for every reading need. This reminds me of like some of the earlier, like closer to the beginning of Book Riot days, where thinking about you can talk about books and reading in a whole bunch of different ways. Like mm-hmm. the review was the coin of the realm, um, and I think that's so much less true uh, for coverage, maybe for social media. The recommendation, social media or Goodreads the recommendation or the review is the atomic unit of discourse peer to peer. But in terms of what a publication to do of the Atlantic stature and seriousness and, and legacy is like, Oh yeah, it's a whole beat and there's all kinds of ways of doing it. And that's something Pamela Paul as her tenure comes to uh, Pamela Paul at the New York times has really championed is like, you, mm-hmm. it's not just a review. There's a whole bunch of stories here. And those stories can be told lots of different ways, and people care about this stuff. You know, it's not the most current thing in the world to do to begin your announcement about how you're going to increase your book coverage by quoting Emily Dickinson's letter from 1862, (laughs) as much of a Dickinson fan I am. So, like, how much they're going to capture the vibrancy and the plurality of what modern sort of book discourse engagement is. Um, But I think it's very possible. Like, the Times have had a lot of success of looking at this as as a beat, and mm-hmm. we could do that too. And our readers yeah. are probably wanting to know more about it. So that's I think that's right. Yeah, I got a press release about it, which Whoa. was it? Yeah, 
And the, yeah, and then the press release took me to this post, but I was like, okay, this is a whole thing that mm-hmm. they're doing. They're excited about it. I'm going to be watching with interest to see how this goes. Yeah, I'm always looking for interesting stuff um, to do. Speaking of interesting stuff to do, <laughs> a Tumblr inspired viral phenomenon on email not the thing i would have said i thought (laughs) here i heard some rumblings of this a while ago and i didn't bring it up here because i didn't know much about it a a, a piece appeared in slate recently by marissa martinelli again link in the show notes as always to all the stories we talk about bookriot.com slash listen about this email newsletter that is serially sending out pieces in order of brand strokers dracula yep on the that, dates that, that that's the tweet that's it that's the tweet. yeah that's the tweet like it's <laughs> on the days that the events happen yes. in the book those sections of text get sent to you in email so you're like experiencing dracula in quote-unquote real time <laughs> along with its characters Two hundred thousand. it's like a Substack newsletter Two hundred thousand people mm. <laughs> have subscribed to this and I just think this is like people are weird and delightful. It's so weird and delightful that it took off on Tumblr, which I haven't thought about in five years. And it made me think about other creative uses of uh, public domain fiction. Mm -hmm. The fact that it's that Dracula's epistolary makes it work particularly well for email. And like we're many years away from what is it, 84 Charing Cross Road? I can never remember. Oh, yeah, 84 Charing Cross Road with our second. Um, you've got mail derived property reference of the day. Yes. Or Charing Cross Railed is the original story, I should say. But we're, yeah, it, that won't be public domain for a while, but no. like you could get some juice out of sending emails from, uh, from of those letters back and forth um, on the days mm-hmm. that they were attributed in the book. All kinds of other, you could do all kinds of things with this. I think Dracula is probably a particularly good use of it. That's just also kind of a kooky read. Yeah. Um, and, and it's the first one, like in the, is this a thing or not a thing? I would say this one is the thing. But if you try to replicate this, you probably don't have a thing. Yeah, I, I was trying to think, is this a, is this the exception that proves the rule? Or has someone figured out a new content form? Again, I think public domain is the key thing here. And mm-hmm. Dracula has, um, it has cachet, right? There's a lot of public domain <laughs> novels and letters or diary right. entries that no one's ever heard of. You know, sign me up for the Samuel Peeps uh, newsletter, right? So of, uh, of something like that. But like, I don't know. You could do, again, I can't, I was trying to think of another one um, that would make a bunch of sense that is in the public domain. I guess what I was thinking of, does someone have a backlist title that they're like, you know mm. what? Let's make it available for free this way. And will people go pick up the book or pick up another, you know, Alice Walker, I, I know there's a I lot of Sturm and Drang around mm-hmm. her right now, and I think uh, understandably and productively so to have that conversation. But in selling the new edition of um, her letters, would you have made the color purple available as a newsletter for a while? I, I, interesting, you know, yeah, interesting, interesting to think about. I just bought um, the collected letters of E.B. White. Which there you is, go. Yeah, it's like a thousand pages. I, I didn't know it's you any, had any E.B. White left to, to do. Congratulations to you. I didn't either. And then a friend, the friend who turned me on to E.B. White at the start of the pandemic as like comfort reading texted me from a bookstore and was like, I just mm. found this. Did you know this existed? I was like, I did not. And now I'm going to read it. Like you could email me E.B. White once a day for decades and I'd be so happy. 
I'm going to give you four ideas. These aren't in public <laughs> domain. You pick the one you would sign up for fastest. Great. Okay. I gave you the color purple. Check that. Mm-hmm. Alice Walker asterisk next to it. Putting that there. Okay. Um, the next one I'm going to give you is, I'm going to save the real tough one for last. <laughs> um, let's see. I Captured the Castle by Dodie Smith. Keeps a diary of the tumultuous year her family faces when an American family moves into the estate, age into their crum- crumbling castle in England. Do you know this book at all? I, I know of it, but I haven't read yeah. it. Okay, so that's one. Um, next, I'm going with a little book called The Martian by Andy Weir. Ever heard of it? <laughs> You'd have to send them out at weird hours because a soul is longer than a yeah. day. And then my last one, um, Perks of Being a Wallflower. Oh, Ever heard of it? Uh-huh. I would, I would sign up for The Martian. That's the, that's the reread yeah. there. It's yeah. the one that I am most likely to actually open and read if it shows up in my inbox rather than just like read the first sentence and be like, I'm too busy for this. Ooh, idea. Let's cross the streams. What if Pushkin did a serialized new full production audiobook of The Martian and each dispatch was that the little section from The Martian with sound effects and Yes. Yep, I'm in. Like five minutes a day. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Um, I got the, I, I, I was looking for lists to choose from, and I stumbled upon our own um, SEO efforts on TBR. So I'll put a link in the show notes there. Best epistolary novels. Those are all on the list. Um, so there you That's go. coming full circle. I appreciate yeah. that. Content marketing to myself, kind of, when you think about it. So go check that out. If you've done this, if you've signed up for this, and you can articulate, this piece in Slate does a good job of saying why this person did it. It didn't have a lot of like, here's someone who's um, been reading it and told other people about it. Like, what's going on? It says the open rate for the email daily is like 75%, which if you know wow. anything about email open rates, which you have no reason to, is very, very high. <laughs> Industry average is like 15%. These are things we know because this is what we do for a living. Um, yeah. We want to take me on this sounds too good to be true story because I saw the link but didn't read it. And yes. I was curious about it. So I, I, I'm... Um, I'm coming to this uh, completely open to what the story is. Yeah, so this is a piece from Newsweek by Rebecca Flood. The headline is, Want to read more books? A company will pay $200 for every novel you finish. And so naturally, that headline made its way through Book Riot of yes. like, we all read a lot of books. <laughs> could be a millionaire by now. Now... So this is being offered by a company called Words Rated. It's a website that studies and analyzes book content. And they're looking for what they call bibliophiles at large to help them classify book content so that they can put it into their analysis engines. But here's the catch. For every novel that you read, you need to make note of lots of things, including the number of characters by gender, the number of sentences given to male versus female characters, locations, how many questions are asked during the book, what animals appear, and many other things. Wait a minute. Okay, sorry, go ahead, finish. I'm, yeah, no, no, that I mean, that's, 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 like, again? that's the job. They're going to then use the data to create unique data-driven studies and statistics about books. Now, I don't know, like, if you apply for this, I don't know what kind of tools words rated gives you for tracking this information or for entering it i would assume that there is something but as you're reading you've got to track the characters and their genders granted they're only referring to male and female characters here so that's a separate issue and it's tough tough hang words rated let's let's get on that 
than the number of sentences given to those characters. And, you know, like most books given are not... Given to? Like their dialogue lines or yes, descriptions? Yes, yeah, their dialogue internal... lines, okay. I guess. That's what I assumed was dialogue. Oh. And most books are not just all dialogue, but that's a lot of pausing oh, to do. Oh, my God. And counting locations doesn't say here what locations means, but are we talking about like they go to different cities or is this like she wakes up and goes to the coffee shop and that's a location and then she goes to the salon and that's another location and then she goes to work and that's a third location? Never never follow a stranger to a second location. That's one of the rules <laughs> right. to live Oprah by. told us in the 90s yes. and we remember. Mm-hmm. How many questions are asked during the book? That's, a, I, that's, that's puzzling to me. What Wait, can animals? I, animals. Like, it, what animal like first of all how is this not a job for ai that was my thought when you said this and maybe this kind of natural language process is just really tough to do it must and be it must be or they would which be leads me way. to if it's that tough to do and you need this much information how is $200 per book anywhere near reasonable i was going to say go be a paralegal if you're going to spend your time doing this you'll get paid more Per mm-hmm. hour, because so a book is going to you know three hundred page book is going to take most people just to read it is going to take them seven to eight hours and that's just to get through it. So you're looking mm-hmm. at all this annotation at least will double your time. At so least. you're looking at sixteen ish hours, sixteen divided by or two hundred divided by sixteen. Yeah, I mean that's not great. You're looking at six dollars an hour, something like that. Am I mm-hmm. close? Seven. Yeah, even just I have not done anything nearly this complicated. But even no, twelve. When pardon me. One Sorry, of the. Math. Yeah, even when one of the Dan Brown novels came out oh and I God. tracked, like, I had post-it notes. I looked, it was like <laughs> full-on beautiful mind in my office when that came out. And it was like post-it notes tracking how many times they refer to his Mickey Mouse watch and how many times he referred to the Girl Friday's ponytail and all those other Dan Brown trips. Like, that slowed me down significantly. Just keeping track of like 10 things where all I was doing was making hash marks and it was easy stuff to recognize of like, oh, there's the Mickey Mouse watch. I wasn't having to go like, okay, wait, now is this, here's a question. Here's an animal. Wait, that's a new location. Here's dialogue. This is a good headline and I understand why people passed it around. Like mm-hmm. I read a lot. Shoot me 200 bo- 200 bones per book I read, but um, no, no, not for this much work. What, what, and what I'm thinking of um, Carl Reiner and Ocean's Eleven, treat me an adult and tell me what the scam <laughs> tell is. Tell me what the scam like, is. What, what is. What are they doing with this? Like what's the step one, get a bunch of, this reminds me of Small Demons. Do you remember Small Demons? Uh-huh. Rebecca, I do. From the early mm-hmm. days. Yeah. They were uh, Richard Nash, really smart guy, interesting publishing person. It was like, we're going to do something similar. Like if all these... All this information about books, like characters and the food they eat and the places we go, and we're going to put it into a digital pot. And if you're interested in, I don't know, eating French fries in Amsterdam, that will connect to another book that also... So they're trying to do a similar yeah. kind of thing. And, and it never was clear what the step three profit, like what is yeah. the use and of this? Are, I really don't get it. They, it does note here that the current focus of their data gathering is on the representation of women in modern novels and that the selections are being pulled from the New York Times bestselling novels of 2022. So they will like assign you which books to read. You could read. You could be assigned Taylor Jenkins Reads debut novel. So did someone get a grant? I mean, is this a business or an academic thing? Does it say? I'm not looking I mean, at it. I'm so, sorry. It does not say it's an academic thing. Words rated is a company. Um yeah, They're doing I research. I don't get what the what their end consumer is. That doesn't make sense. I don't sense either. That. Huh. Uh, but they are envisioning that their first cohort of bibliophiles will be in place in June. They're saying that they're going to initially take on five to ten people with the aim of building up a base of about twenty. It's a remote position. 
that can be slotted into your spare time if you feel like giving away your spare time for like 10 bucks an hour. Um, well, you know, I mean, I can imagine where people would find it interesting to do. I mean, it's not it. I was expecting it to really come down to like pennies per hour, like one of those mm-hmm. situations, like it being some sort of Ponzi or pyramid scheme or I, I don't know what else they would be. Or like you've got to give them your social security number to get the job and then they go drain your bank account. But like sounds like they're going to give you real money for actual work, whether or not that rate appeals to you or not. I would love to know more myself about who I'm, uh, who the job is for. I guess I'm in Ocean's yeah. Eleven now, uh, <laughs> eventually. Um, fascinating to, to see yeah. animals. That's, that's, that's going to keep, keep me up. Animals. I don't, I don't quite. <laughs> Curious. Um, you want to do Hero of the Week and we'll get out of here? I, man, my heart needed a hero yeah, this boy, week. Yeah, boy, I tell you. So... Um, as we know, listening to this show, book banning is reaching unprecedented heights or attempts at book banning are. And there is a 14 year old in Pennsylvania whose name is Jocelyn Diffenbaugh, who is having none of it. Jocelyn has proclaimed uh, herself to be a book nerd and has started a book club to specifically read books that have been banned by school districts Let's go. across Let's the country. Go. Let's do it. Jocelyn's an eighth grader at Cutstown Middle School. This is a piece in the Washington Post by Sydney Page. Uh, these books are great works of literature, and I really just didn't understand why so many people wanted to ban them, Jocelyn said. It's important that people read these books because it helps them grow. Jocelyn, may your efforts succeed. Mm. I have nothing else to add. You can find the show notes, links to what we talked about on at bookwrite, excuse me, bookwrite.com slash listen. You can choose the email, podcast at bookwrite.com, especially on that Dracula Tumblr email tip. Also, um, tell Pushkin to uh, hire me to do the Martian sound effects. That's, that's really what I want to do. It's where my skill set is. Foley work on Mars, show title. Um, <laughs> stick around. If you're uh, stick, stick around for the net and yahoos by... Uh, um, Mr. Joshua Cohen provided to us so far from our pals at Pushkin. And if you're a Wheelhouse member, take a look for the show notes. We're putting the show notes for the next weeks, I guess. That's where they'll look for it, the Wheelhouse members. Well, they'll find the code. when you are listening to this on the Wheelhouse, which will be Friday the 20th ah, or after, it'll be in the in that post. Gotcha. Yeah. All right. So, Rebecca, as always, thank you so much. Mm-hmm. Chapter 1. My name is Reuben Blum, and I'm N, yes, N, historian. Soon enough, though, I guess I'll be historical, by which I mean I'll die and become history myself, in a rare type of transformation traditionally reserved for the purer scholars. Lawyers die and don't become the law. Doctors die and don't turn into medicine but biology and chemistry professors pass away and decompose into biology and chemistry. They mineralize into geology. They disperse into their science, just as surely as mathematicians become statistics. The same process holds true for us historians. In my experience, we're the only ones in the humanities for whom this holds true, the only ones who become what we study. We age. We yellow. We go wrinkled and brittle along with our materials until our lives subside into the past to become the very substance of time. Or maybe that's just the Jew in me talking. 
Goys believe in the word becoming flesh, but Jews believe in the flesh becoming word, a more natural, rational incarnation. By way of further introduction, I will now quote a remark made to me by the Who Shall Remain Nameless then-president of the American Historical Association, when I met him at a symposium back in my student days, just after the Second World War. Ah, he said, limply pressing my hand. Blum, did you say? A Jewish historian? Though the man surely intended this remark to wound me, it merely succeeded in bringing delight. And even now I find I can smile at the description. I appreciate its accidental imprecision and the way the double entendre can function as a type of psychological test. A Jewish historian, when you hear that, what do you think? What image springs to mind? The point is the epithet as applied is both correct and incorrect. I am a Jewish historian, but I am not an historian of the Jews. Or I've never been one, professionally. Instead, I'm an American historian, or I was. After half a century in the professorate, I was recently retired from my post as the Andrew William Mellon Memorial Professor of American Economic History at Corbin University in Corbindale, New York. In the occasionally rural, occasionally wild heart of Chautauqua County, just inland from Lake Erie, among the apple orchards and apiaries and dairies, or as dismissive, geographically illiterate New York City folk insist on calling it, upstate. I myself was once one of these city folk, and though that old wisdom is false that teachers learn more from their students than vice versa, I did manage to pick this up early on. Never call Corbindale upstate. Though my initial focus was on the economics of the pre-American British colonial period, my reputation, such as it is, was made in the field of what's now referred to as taxation studies, and especially for my research into the history of tax policy's influence on politics and political revolutions. To be sure, I never much enjoyed the field, but it was open to me. Rather, the field didn't exist until I discovered it, and, like a bumbling Columbus, I only discovered it because it was there. By the time I got into academia, America was already crowded. Even American economic history was already crowded. And I've always had a decent head for numbers. Taking on the history of taxes got me out of the ghetto of colonial catalactics and eventually even out of America itself, into the European city-states, feudal tax farming, church tithes, antiquities development of customs duties and trade tariffs, all the way back to the Rosetta Stone and even the Bible, both of which, most people forget, are substantially just tax documents. 